Hey everybody, on this episode of 10,000 Feet, OST's CIO Jim Vandermeer talks with Joe Brennan, a telehealth consultant from Moonshot Consulting. If you've ever had a doctor's visit on your phone or computer instead of going in, then you've experienced telehealth. It's a growing industry and Joe is here to help us break it down. Enjoy. Good afternoon, this is Jim Vandermeer. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer with Open Systems Technologies, one of the founders here lead our healthcare practice as well. And today, um, our guest is uh, Joe Brennan. And Joe, I'll let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Jim. My name is Joe Brennan, and I am a consultant for Moonshot Health Consulting. And we focus primarily on telehealth and virtual care. So what Joe didn't just say is that, um, by virtue of his own humility, is I think he's one of the smartest guys in telehealth. Um, I have learned more about telehealth from my relationship with Joel over the last several years than I've gotten from any other source. And, and the reason why I wanted to do this today is because I think there's a lot of myths in the telehealth space and the direct-to-consumer space in healthcare that um, Joe has um, repudiated through, in part through data. And so I'm, I'm really interested to hear about some of that today. So. So Joe, um, want to give a little bit about your background before you started Moonshot? So I um, started in healthcare in 2013, uh, was brought on to business development for a large health system in the Midwest. Um, very quickly, I was directed to help uh, with a telehealth program. At the time, it wasn't a program. It was a group of different service lines that were interested in utilizing technology to deliver care, but didn't quite know how to do it. Um, and they were all headed in a different direction and speaking a different language from a technical perspective. And so my job originally was to, can we put some structure to this? And is this something that we can replicate and standardize so that it looks the same to the patients regardless of who the service line was? Uh, so this started back in 2014. And over the course of the next five years, we took a, a singular use case and expanded it to 100,000 visits. And that journey of building it from scratch organically, as opposed to going with a vendor that already has workflows and standard work and the entire operations already baked for you, um, there were a lot of lessons learned from building it yourself. And I think at the end of the day, um, failing quickly, learning what didn't work and getting consistent feedback from patients and focusing on that patient experience, we learned a ton. And so uh, I'm not going to live up to the introduction you gave me, <laughs> but we did learn a lot of lessons that it just goes against what people already think telehealth is. So Joe, um, telehealth, that can mean a lot of things from remote monitoring to direct-to-consumer engagement. What, how do you define it? Well, unfortunately, I think it's different for everybody. Um, most telehealth presentations, if this is the first time you're seeing it, they give a slide of definitions to begin. Um, I always saw telehealth as the overarching term, the umbrella that everything goes underneath. So whether it is uh, asynchronous or synchronous video, whether it's remote patient monitoring, um, all of that fell under telehealth. Um, but I think people call telemedicine the synchronous audio video connecting clinical space to clinical space. And when we think synchronous, I mean, that's, that's a, a term that's familiar to us as technologists. What, describe what synchronous versus asynchronous would be. Live audio video connecting patient to provider or real provider time. to provider in real time. Mm -hmm. 
And so what that first step, and I think that's the, the iteration that we're all comfortable with now, is that video component of seeing someone through video technology. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to it, talk about what the future looks like, but I think when you incorporate future technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, that first step will be asynchronous. It'll be an interaction with technology before you have to go to a human being. So some type of triaging process exactly. earlier in the, earlier in the uh, interaction. So what was the first use case that you ran through your telehealth program? Well, w the first lesson learned in the first couple of weeks was the only, the only way to really get something off the ground was to have engaged stakeholders. If this was forced on someone, it was not going to be successful. And we identified cardiology as the first service line to say, this is a good idea, let's try it. Just a second, uh, cardiology, and most of the time people are thinking about primary care or ED, urgent care. So why did you start with cardiology? They were engaged. They okay. said, we don't have the capacity to send one, send our cardiologist to this regional hospital, this rural hospital that's about an hour away. We just don't have the bandwidth to send people there as much as we would like. And so we said, well, the use case, we could bring you there virtually. We could have the patient show up at that location, still sit in the exam room. We'll just put them in front of a 27 inch monitor and you can have that conversation with them. <clears throat> um, and it worked. It, it, the, the first use case was to bring a cardiologist to a regional hospital so that cardiologists didn't need to travel. And it also eliminated the patient from having to drive to Grand Rapids because there was no access out in the regional hospitals. And so that very first use case, we could tell, actually with the first patient, we could tell, okay, this makes sense. This is beneficial to the service line, and this is more importantly beneficial to the patient. So it had value to the patient, the consumer. It also had value to the provider. Correct. One of the, the consistent questions that comes up is how these programs get funded. Um, and so in that beginning stage, how did you push forward without uh, a clear funding model? Or were you able to get a clear funding model? Well, I think the uh, best way to put it is we approached the ones we could get paid on first. So Michigan became a parity state in 2012, meaning that the state government said, you need to pay for telehealth services. And so we were able to get reimbursed as long as the patient was in a rural area. And so uh, understanding that this would be paid the same as a face-to-face -face, uh, encounter, leadership was comfortable with us moving forward with it. Okay. But with that being said, that, that, that has always been the barrier. Reimbursement has been the reason why telehealth has not moved forward because if you can do something for this amount and you're in a fee-for-service world in healthcare, or you can do something for significantly less or no payment at all, which one are you going to choose when you're constantly required to hit certain numbers? So what you're implying is that telehealth programs can actually take revenue away from certain classes of providers. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, it, and I'm, if we get down to the direct consumer models, um, specifically for low acuity primary care, it's cannibalization. You're taking visits out of urgent care and the emergency department. Is that what we should be doing? Yes, absolutely. But does that help the bottom line of someone who's worried about making numbers for the quarter or the fiscal year? No, you're, you're taking that revenue away from one area and replacing it with something that is much uh, less 
the, the cost is significantly less. So um, let's define direct-to-consumer. Um, we've been using the word patient, but now DTC is a buzzword. What does that, what does that mean in the telehealth space? So that is connecting patient to provider on their own device. And so if you think of telehealth five years ago, 10 years ago, or even what they were doing in Canada 20 years ago, it was really expensive piece of equipment. The, the days of the $100,000 robot that was actually just a monitor on a cart with a codec. Uh, expensive equipment talking to expensive equipment with really expensive infrastructure in between. That was telehealth and minimum stakes to get started was significant. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everybody has a smart device in their pocket. I think the 2017 Pew study said that 77% of Americans have this in their pocket. It's obviously higher now. So that, for those of you who can't see over the, over the podcast, Joe's actually holding up his phone right now. <laughs> and this is the best example of what has changed. This changed telehealth, this being the smart device, because now the technology required is in everybody's pocket. They're bringing their own device. And so moving away from creating use cases with really expensive infrastructure to something that is mobile-based, that's where it switched. And it switched for us, and that is the direction that I see the industry going completely. Obviously, there are needs in intensive care and telestroke and other use cases that are in the four walls of a hospital. But when it is a conversation with your healthcare provider, regardless of who it is, if it doesn't require a physical exam, you should be doing it mobily. And I think that's going to be the expectation of patients. So it's an empowerment of the patient in that moment, as opposed to a, a revenue opportunity for the hospital. It might be incremental. It might, it might generate something, but it's going to be cannibalizing existing ED or urgent care visits. Well, healthcare is a model built <clears throat> where the physician says, you come to me at this time when it works best for me. Mm -hmm. What other industry works that way? Well, that's, that was the point of Eric Topol's book. Exactly. Um, so that the doctor will see you now or the patient will see you now and that the idea that the mobile device creates an empowered consumer able to consume their own data use their own data and interact with the physicians on their terms it's up to the physician community and the hospital community then to engage with them on their terms which is tough it is unless you build rebuild the model if you change your model or you change the way care is delivered it can work and it can work well. And I think that's what we started to prove. Uh, and more and more health systems are proving that. So give an example, redesigning the workflow. Okay. Instead of having a brick and mortar practice that's filled uh, with physicians and APPs and scheduling patients to always come to that building, you create a virtual hub of providers, providers that aren't all in one centrally located um, physical space, they're actually probably all working from home. But they have the same schedule, they look at the same electronic medical record as they would if they were in an office, they have medical assistants and nurses that still help them. They're all connected in a virtual space. They have a hub that they're working out of, and it's very much like a practice, but they're able to provide care to anyone who comes in. There are efficiencies that come from creating a hub. In addition to not requiring patients to come into a physical place where they can be seen where and when they want, it's actually satisfying for the provider as well. So you could have a mid-level provider who's working from um, their home in a branded experience that is still intrinsic to the healthcare system. 
Correct. Cool. So you developed this first use case and then you started moving to another use case. So what's an example of a use case that didn't go well? Well, I think four of the first six use cases never saw the first patient. And the benefit that we had from the system that I uh, cut my teeth, so to speak, was that we were allowed to fail. They, they were comfortable with failure as long as we did it quickly and moved on. Um, as long as we learned from what went wrong and improved. Um, the first use case that most health systems start with is telestroke. Um, and we began to build that, but learning that critical lesson, if you don't have buy-in of the providers, it's not gonna go anywhere. If someone's told to do something, when it's in this disruptive area, it's not gonna go well. But if you have the providers in that space saying, this is great, this is gonna benefit my patients, and it's also gonna help me with my day-to-day. -day. When you have that buy-in, things move forward. So you're suggesting that innovation like water uh, starts high and follows the path of least resistance in order to be successful. Exactly. Okay. Good way to put it, yes. So um, one of the things that I've, I've appreciated from our conversations over the years, Joe, is how you developed a lot of data, um, which you then used to inform what happened next. And some of that data went against intuition, but you started developing um, insights from the data. So what were some of those things you learned from the data that you collected? Um, not the data, not the medical data that you were collecting, but the interaction pattern data you were collecting. The, the first aha that we were taught through our dashboard, um, the myth is that direct-to-consumer uh, for low-acuity primary care needs to be an on-demand experience. If you don't have it where you can be seen within five minutes, then you don't have uh, what people are looking for. And we didn't really believe that. And so we allowed the patient to schedule their visit, whether so, it's 10 minutes from now or two hours from now, we allowed them to choose a time, similar to the way an uh, open table or even a, a tea time if the golf course is tech savvy. You pick the time that works best for you as opposed to waiting in a virtual waiting room. Because our argument when we sat around a table said, why would we replicate the worst part of a, the patient experience, which is sitting in a waiting room? Let's give them a time that works best for them. And again, the industry, even today, still says, no, 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 it needs to be on demand. Once you tap that button, you need to be waiting in a queue to be seen next. But when we looked at the data from the time the patient engaged the scheduling tool to the time they chose to be seen, it was always fell into that one to three hours from the time they initiated. We had zero to one, and we assumed based on what the myth is, is that was gonna be the most populated segment of the data, but it wasn't. It was one to three hours from the time they initiated it. And what that told us, and that's 45,000 visits at the time, what that told us was people don't want it right away. People want to know that, okay, I have a sore throat, I wanna be seen, at this time because I have a meeting and then when I'm done, I can actually sit in my office, close my door and have my visit. Or I can make arrangements for my kids. I can make sure the dog's not barking in the background, whatever the thing is that they want to set up. They can have a better experience if they can do it. Oh, you're saying that around their own schedule. Exactly. Not around what the, when the, because you enter into that place of ambiguity of, is this going to be 15 minutes? Is this going to be one minute? Do I have to sit around? Yeah. And, and and every time, so we saw the data that told us that's what's going on. 
And then we talked to patients and said, did you find this convenient that you could choose? And well, absolutely. Why would I want to sit there? And then when we would talk to people who would challenge us, we asked them to hold their phone up. And so again, podcast, this doesn't translate very well, but I'm holding my, <laughs> my phone up and you get into a couple minutes, your arm starts to get tired. This gets a little boring, right? And imagine doing that for 15 minutes. Um, and so that it, it proved the point. And then we had data points to say what people wanted. We had the uh, anecdotal stories from the patients. And then we were able to run with that and say, this is, we need to do scheduled visits because this is what's working. The other thing that completely changed what this was for us, when we built our direct-to-consumer uh, offering, we assumed that this was a millennial moment. We thought this was 18 to 27, that's who's gonna use this and we need to build the experience catered around them. And we thought it would be more male than female. And so building that and saying, okay, well, what would our audience like? What is, this, what is the patient that fits this box? What do we wanna create for them? And after we had people use it, we could start to track what the demographics were. And overwhelmingly, it was female. 70, at the time, 73% female. Women take much better care of themselves, but they also serve as the chief medical officer of the home. So that 22-year-old male, that individual doesn't even engage in healthcare. The person who finds the access and convenience of telehealth is a 38-year-old female, that chief medical officer of the home. She makes the decisions for her children. She tells her husband what he needs to do. And she also sits in that space where she's letting her friends know and her siblings know kind of what this great convenient experience is. So she's the chief medical officer. She's also a social influencer in that moment. There's a book um, titled Geek Heresy, which talks about how technology doesn't change human behavior. It simply accelerates the behaviors that are already present. And so the 22-year-old disengaged male doesn't automatically engage with the healthcare system because he now has a technical capability to do it. And so it's an accelerant for what those behaviors are that are already present. Absolutely. And so we, we identified what we called the alpha daughter. That daughter who made the decisions in her household, but she sits in the sandwich generation. So she's giving mom and dad advice to say, you don't always have to go in for these things. You can use the iPad that you use to FaceTime our kids um, to see your doctor. And so uh, understanding from the data who our audience was that really helped us make better business decisions as it related to uh, marketing and engagement. So marketing and engagement, that's a, that's a good point because now you have the data about what people are actually um, using. You have the data about what kind of people and what your demographic is that you're serving. How did that change the way that you began engaging with the market? Um, well, in the beginning, we used traditional marketing means. We put up billboards and we sent out postcards, like physically mailed postcards. Um, if you have no idea what telehealth is, you're definitely going to figure out what it is by driving by for three seconds of a picture of a woman holding an iPad. I um, remember being in Northern California and seeing uh, stuff on the side of a bus. So signage on the side of buses moving through San Francisco, yep. advertising telehealth platforms. You have no idea what you're even looking at and you instantly forget what you're seeing. But now that we know we have this 38-year-old female and she's engaged technically. So 
how are we going to reach her? Well, let's reach her on the device that she used to connect to us. So let's go through social media. And understanding that the 38-year-old female is probably still on Facebook, we started to create Facebook content. And that got us in front of our exact demographic that we were going after. And then you take all of the analytics that social media gives you. If you buy a billboard, it tells you about this many cars drive by this in a month's time. And this is the average. It's from 3 to 93. And maybe they looked up when they drove by. OK, I can't really use that. But when you have social media and you take the analytics of who's actually looking at it, who's clicking on it, who's paying attention, you have all these new metrics to determine whether something is successful or not. Create a call to action, ask them to download the app, ask them to watch a video. These are all things that you can now pinpoint exactly who is seeing your message and what are they doing with it. That completely changed our approach and how we were engaging with patients. So it, it's not just about the direct-to-consumer and the telehealth platform itself, but it's also about an entire motion of engaging with consumers from awareness campaigns to the actual platform to using data to drive decision making, um, thinking about patients as consumers even. Um, so, so there's all of these different ways that you're changing um, the behavior of a health system. Can you do that inside of an existing entity? Did you have, do we have to create parallel organizations? Or can you innovate from within? Do you have to innovate from without? Um, where, do, where does that land? I think it has to be done inside. And I say that because there are a lot of vendors out there that say, we have the perfect solution for you. And there are a lot of startup companies, even two and three-year-old companies that are have this great idea. But at the end of the day, when you're a patient and you're sick and you have a relationship, that's who you're going to go to. That's why you still wait three months for an appointment. That's why you're still willing to pay $150 copay to go into the emergency department for something you could take care of in your home. The relationship is still there. So I think as this evolves, that may dissipate a little, but you still, it has to come from the health system, is the opinion of Moonshot Health Consulting, is that build it yourselves. Because when you, like anything that you do in your life, if you're not feeling well, you're going to search. And what's going to pop up? So if you talk to a health system about a digital ecosystem, what is your find a doctor tool? What is your telehealth platform? What is your patient portal? What are all these digital tools that help your patient remain healthier? And if it can link to a system that that loyalty and the um, relationship will still continue to grow just from a digital perspective. You know, Joe, I've been in healthcare for about 30 years and I remember all of the time I worked on, on the find a doc projects where that was viewed as such a low value activity. But when we pivot that and say, someone who's looking for a doctor in that moment has a sense of need. And if you can capture that, at that moment when they have a sense of need and fulfill that without having a three hour, a three month wait or have to go to the emergency room or something, what kind of loyalty does that start creating to the system? Did you, did you start seeing new patients come into the system because of this interaction? It was one of our uh, key metrics were new patients to the system. 
And we did so because of the, the access and convenience offers this to a new group of people who might not necessarily engage. But because the threshold is now uh, easier, there is the opportunity for people to use the service. And so about between 30 and 35% of all the patients that used our direct-to-consumer offering were new to the system. And when you think about all of the people who don't have primary care or are just starting, they've been off their parents' insurance for a couple of years, and they really don't have any concerns now, but they are going to have concerns down the road. Um, and equally as important, understand their wellness. Healthcare is going to move. It's inevitable that it'll move from treating the sick to keeping everybody healthy. And as you take your wearable information and you have data from this and you have data from that and how does it all where does it all sit and who's actually evaluating it and helping you one of the areas that i see uh, opportunities in, in the telehealth space and I'm, I'm referencing other other engagements that i've been involved in but on friday we were doing a workshop with a client um, in their ed department and the number of patients that this particular healthcare system sees in their ed that use the hospital as their home address and um, have no relationship with a primary care physician. But they have smartphones. Mm -hmm. They are reachable through technology, um, which means that that follow-up for the chronic user is something that you can do in a telehealth platform that you can't do any other way. Um, had, did you have any experiences with those kind of interactions? That's always the argument against uh, Medicaid paying for telehealth services. For many, their smart device is their address. They may be in a different place this month than they were last month, but what's consistent is that smart device. The other problem that we run into, if you have transportation issues, rarely is there a bus stop in front of a primary care office, but there is always a bus stop in front of an emergency department. And if you're on Medicaid and it costs you $1 to go to the emergency department, for a sinus infection, that's what you're gonna do. But if we could replace that emergency department visit, allow them to stay in their home, that doesn't cost $920 or whatever it is for that low acuity condition in the emergency department. You're now lowering the overall cost of healthcare if you bring services to the patient on their own device. Hmm. And Medicare doesn't currently reimburse for everything, but when they do, uh, that will shift everything. And, and it's that population that you talk about. It's utilizing the emergency department as your primary care office. Well, and, and from a primary care standpoint, if you look at the distribution of primary care um, facility construction, it's largely going after suburban markets. There's not a lot of construction of new primary care facilities and access points in urban settings. So do you think that telehealth is a solution for some of those kind of access issues? Absolutely. And that's another myth. Um, Ann Munn Johnson, who's the CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, always argues that we need to stop looking at telehealth as a solution for rural communities. Yes, rural communities lack specialty care, but that's not to say that there isn't medical deserts within urban environments. There, there is a need for health care in a lot of underserved communities. Um, and it's, this is not just a rural thing. I think once we transition from a fee-for-service world to a value-based world, that's when this all shifts because everybody's going to look for the best way uh, to connect to patients so that they can remain profitable but also take, keep those 
patients healthy? So uh, one of our clients in Minneapolis is using telehealth outreach specifically to, to engage with the Somali community because you can't necessarily have a, um, uh, a provider in every community that, that resonates with all the patients, but you can through a telehealth platform. They can engage with somebody like them, which was an interesting model um, as well. So, so, so you see rural, it's access to specialty care, and then it's, it's access to primary care in urban settings as well. Correct. Okay. Yeah, because most specialists will be in urban environments and have big medical complexes. And yes. So you're flipping it, absolutely. There's so much that I see as a, as a possibility with telehealth um, in engaging with patients, helping to drive down costs. There's reimbursement issues. What's, what's the place that people need to start? If maybe they've had a failed experiment, um, where do you see most health systems being at from an engagement standpoint today with telehealth? Well, I think where it used to, the, the starting off point used to be within the four walls of the hospital. And that's where you, you require uh, expensive equipment and a very robust infrastructure and all of that. Um, simple video conferencing allows you to connect patient to provider. So starting in a direct consumer model, and, and that's what we talk about at Moonshot Health Consulting, is that this is low, the, the stakes are, the minimum stakes are low. You just need a way to connect to patient um, in a way that's easy for both the patient and the provider. And using video conferencing for a simple follow-up, whether it's a hypertensive patient or even to have care management check in on people. Um, we're at a point in 2019 where most people are comfortable with FaceTime. Most people have interacted with some type of video connection. And if that means they're going to uh, take a little better care of themselves or they know that somebody's paying attention to them, it, it's a very low entry point, but it will build very quickly. You know, I think that you, you've just identified that the human connection um, of a person caring, a person following up is one of the most important indicators for managing chronic disease as well as follow-up to an inpatient higher acuity event. But behavioral health, behavioral health, I think, from uh, uh, access to care is almost worse than primary care. Well, it is worse than primary care. It is, absolutely. Absolutely worse than primary care. And with so many chronic diseases and the opioid epidemic, access to behavioral health resources are going to become more and more important. Do you see telehealth fitting into a behavioral health model? It's the perfect use case. And it was the highest volume use case that uh, we had at my previous employer. Just a second. Behavioral health was the highest volume use case? Outside of low acuity primary care, yes. Okay. Um, there's no physical exam. You establish trust with the person you're talking to, and it's a conversation. So what lends better to telehealth than behavioral health? Um, we had patient after patient tell us that they were actually more comfortable doing it virtually than they were face-to-face -face because going into an office and sitting in a chair in front of someone is intimidating. We had a, another patient, one of the best stories we had, had PTSD from a car accident. She Just, would, so so they, had, they had PTSD because they were involved in a car accident? Correct. And then, of course, they have to... They were asked to come into the office, get into a car and go into the office. 
And they didn't. And they didn't. Why not? She didn't leave her house, oh, of yeah, course. obviously, right? <laughs> and so to be able to connect with her and have two or three sessions before um, it kind of ease her tension and her anxiety, it allowed her to then kind of settle in and it made absolute sense. And she was able to interact with the same provider in each session. Correct. So she built a relationship um, through her smart device with a provider who was then able to talk them through that initial um, recovery period and then have an inpatient face-to-face -face experience after that. If needed, but, if, I, but once people have a, a virtual encounter, um, two things also jump out right away. Uh, the patient is much more comfortable because they're in their own environment. Uh, it's much easier for you to have a conversation about your feelings when you're sitting on your own couch. But you're also having the provider see inside their space. If they're oh. saying that they feel, um, you know, they're down and depressed and there's blankets covering every window and, you know, they have boxes and boxes of stuff or nobody's cleaned the kitchen or, you know, that type of scenario that now the provider's seeing what their environment looks like. Because we all know when we go to the doctor, we're not 100% truthful all the time, right? Yes. So how is life, you know, is your apartment clean? There's actually a book out there called The Man Who Lied to His Computer. <laughs> and it talks about that very thing that through, um, through how, how digital intermediation changes the way we engage with truth even. Yeah. And so that the person-to-person -person connection via video is probably one of the most honest interaction patterns that we can have. Because, like you said, you can't block, block out the background. Um, uh, side comment, um, I, I sit on the State uh, Health Information Technology Commission for the state of Michigan with the Department of Health and Human Services. And we're working on an agenda to allow for a clear articulation of how privacy relates to behavioral health data sharing. Because right now, payers and providers and patients don't get clear guidance as to what they can share and not share. And we believe at the, at the commission that developing clear guidance on this is gonna help build a community of behavioral health providers that can share through technology with a larger patient community. So, sorry, uh, that's just the um, little commercial for our work there. So we're, we have the, the, the actual technology it has to be designed into an interaction pattern. We have to develop how we're going to leverage it within our practices, and then we have to build the platforms to do that. And so I think that there's, there's clearly investments that are made. Why would a health system invest in those kind of activities versus just buying something off the shelf or buying a, a service from a third party? You, as a health system, should be in control of what your patient experience is, what your clinical quality is, and what your brand is. Um, who you are is important these days because it's very easy for someone to come into your community and search and find out that that's not how it used to be when you would choose a primary care doctor, but now you're using digital tools to say, okay, well, where am I going to have the care for myself and for my family? And so creating... Uh, an experience that is yours, I think is very important. Buying something off the shelf uh, makes you like everyone else. And I think that's, the, that's our um, hypothesis at OST as well, is that you invest in systems of differentiation. You, you buy transactional systems or commoditized systems. And so if you go into this discussion 
is this something that's going to differentiate us? Is this something that is an extension of our brand? Or is this simply a commodity that we have to provide because everybody else has it? And I think that's an important statement about who you are as a healthcare system. I am required by our, our podcast staff to ask a question. Is uh, We're in an old game factory. Uh, we are the home of the Drukey, this was the Drukey game building before OST moved in this space nine years ago. Um, what's your favorite game, Joe? And um, why? <laughs> well, so I, I would have to say my favorite game is Shanghai Rummy. And it is a card game that I learned from my grandmother. And so there's obviously nostalgia. You get to think about childhood and my whole family. But it's a game that anybody can play. But once you get into it, it's seven rounds of different kinds of rummy. The game, one game takes a couple hours to play. But whether you're six, year old, six years old or you're 80 years old, anybody can play. But when you get into the thick of it, it is strategic. You need to be constantly paying attention. So it's very exciting that um, it doesn't require any specific skills, but it gets intense and it's something that takes a while. Okay, we'll add that to the list. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today. And um, thank you for listening today. Thank you. OST, changing how the world connects together. For more information, go to ostusa.com slash podcast.